So this video has some really great advice for children on how they can make sure that their lives are having a positive influence on the people around them instead of a negative one. And I think it's a really cool analogy, just the idea of we all have a bucket. And when we do nice things and loving things for other people, it fills their bucket up. And when we do mean things, it dips into their bucket. And I think this is great advice on how we should all live. And it's something that we as a church are really seeking to do, is live our lives in a way that we're a blessing to the people around us. And that's our vision as a church, to be a blessing to the people around us through gospel-centered love. And our vision team has been hard at work, working to make those things um, a reality for our church. And it's something that we really want to do and join God in bringing redemption to the world around us because we desire to become better at joining God in his redeeming work. We're studying through the book of Joshua together to see how God led the nation of Israel and delivered them into the promised land. This book is filled with examples and lessons on navigating new and exciting times. We feel like at Freedens, we are in an exciting time where God is doing a lot of things in and through us. And we want to learn that the lessons that this book has to offer as we navigate through this critical time in the life of our church. Today is actually the last message in the series, and it takes place when Joshua is at the end of his life. He calls together the people of Israel, and he reminds them of everything that God has done for them. He finishes off the book by giving them a speech that challenges them to stay faithful to God and to serve him rather than following the worthless gods of the Canaanites. Before we dive in, into today's passage, I want to show you a video that overviews the entire book of Joshua. It's a pretty long video, but part of the reason that I want to show you this video is because it's part of a really great series called The Bible Project. These videos do an awesome job describing the main ideas of a particular book of the Bible in a clear, that, clear way that helps you to understand what that book is all about. When I personally start reading a new, um, or start a new reading of a book of the Bible, I like to watch the video for that book um, to help me get more out of it as I read it. I'm hoping that you will um, understand the value of these videos as well and start using this awesome tool in your personal studies. The other reason that I want to show you this video is so that we can see the big picture of what Joshua is all about and have that fresh in our minds as we dive into the passage today. So please... Direct your eyes to the screen for this video. The book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham, and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died, and Israel's ready to enter the land. So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the promised land, and then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites, and so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the 12 tribes, and then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in, and we'll see how all of it flows together. 
The first section begins with Moses' death, and Joshua is appointed as Israel's new leader. And the author intentionally presents Joshua as a new Moses. So like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the Torah, which means the covenant commands that they were given at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua sends spies into the land, just as Moses did back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, except it goes way better this time. In fact, even some Canaanites turn and follow the God of Israel. Joshua then leads all Israel across the Jordan River and into the land. Just like the sea parted for Moses in the Exodus, so here the river Jordan parts and the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across, leading all Israel with them. Now, in chapter 5, the story transitions. So the people look back to their roots as God's covenant people, and so the new generation is circumcised and they celebrate their first Passover in the land. But then they turn and prepare to go forward. And Joshua has this crazy encounter with a mysterious warrior who, it turns out, is the angelic commander of God's army. And Joshua asks, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the warrior responds, neither. Which shows that the real question here is whether Joshua is on God's side. It makes clear that this whole story is not about Israel versus the Canaanites. Rather, this is God's battle, and Israel is going to play the role of spectators or sometimes supporters in God's plan, which leads to the next section. We find stories about all these conflicts that Israel had with different Canaanite groups, and the first part retells the story of two battles in detail, and that's followed by a series of short stories that condense years of battles into a few brief summaries. So the first two battles are against Jericho and then Ai, and they offer these contrasting portraits of God's faithfulness versus Israel's failure. At Jericho, Israel is to take a completely passive approach. So they let God's presence in the ark lead them around the city to music for six days. And just like Rahab turned to the God of Israel, maybe the people of Jericho would do the same, but they don't. And so on the seventh day, the priests blow the trumpets and the walls come falling down, leading Israel to victory. The point of the story is that God is the one who will deliver his people. Israel simply needs to trust and wait. Now the next story of the battle at Ai makes the opposite point. So there's this Israelite named Achan, and he steals from Jericho some of the devoted goods that were to belong to God alone, and then he lies about it. It's a pretty lame move after all that God has done for Israel. And so Israel goes into battle with the city of Ai, and they're totally defeated. And it's only after humble repentance and severely dealing with Achan's sin that Israel gains victory. And so together, these two stories, they're placed right up front to make an important point. If Israel is going to inherit the land, they have to be obedient and trust in God's commands. They don't get special treatment. Now, the second part of this section begins with the Gibeonites, a Canaanite people group, and they do just what Rahab did as they turn to follow the God of Israel and they make peace with Israel. This is in contrast to all of these other Canaanite kings who start to form alliances and coalitions, and they want to destroy Israel. So Israel engages them in battle, and they win by a landslide. And so this whole section concludes with this summary list of all of these victories won by Moses and then by Joshua. Now, let's stop for a second, because odds are that these stories and the violence in them, they're going to bother you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're bound to wonder, like, didn't Jesus say to love your enemies? Why is God declaring war here? 
So first, why the Canaanites? The main reasons are actually given earlier in the biblical story. It's that the culture of the Canaanites had become extremely morally corrupt, especially when it comes to sex. Go check out Leviticus chapter 18. And they also widely practiced child sacrifice. Go see Deuteronomy chapter 12. And so God didn't want these practices to influence Israel. The Canaanites had to go. Which raises the second question. Did God actually command the destruction of all the Canaanites, like a genocide? So at first glance, you know, you look at the phrases used in these stories. They totally destroyed them. They left no survivor or anything that breathed. But when you look a second time more closely, you'll see that these phrases are clearly hyperbole and not literal. So go back to the original command about the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Israel is first told to drive out the Canaanites, but then to totally destroy them. And then that's followed by commands to not intermarry with them or enter into business deals with them. So you can't marry someone that you've destroyed. I think you get the point. The same idea applies to the stories in Joshua. Look closely. So, for example, we're told in Joshua chapter 10 that Israel left no survivors in the cities of Hebron or Debir. But then later, in chapter 15, we see these towns, and they're still populated by Canaanites. And so what we're seeing is that Joshua fits in with other ancient battle accounts by using non-literal hyperbolic language as part of the narrative style. And so the word genocide doesn't actually fit what we see here, especially in light of the stories about the Canaanites who did turn to the God of Israel, like Rahab or the Gibeonites. God was open to those who would turn to him. The last thing to think about is that these stories mark a unique moment in Israel's history. These battles were limited to the handful of people groups living in the land of Canaan. With all other nations, Israel was commanded by God to pursue peace. Go read Deuteronomy chapter 20. So the purpose of these battle stories was never to tell you, the reader, to go commit violence in God's name. Rather, they show God bringing his justice on human evil at a unique moment in history and how he delivered Israel from being annihilated by the Canaanites. Now, let's go back to the book's design. After years of battles, we see an aging Joshua, and he starts dividing up the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. And most of this section is like lists of boundary lines. And let's be honest, it's kind of boring. It's like reading a map that has no pictures. But for the Israelites, these lists were super important. This was the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the promised land. And so now it was all coming to pass right down to the detail, which leads to the final section. Joshua gives two speeches to the people that are very similar to the final speeches of Moses in Deuteronomy. Joshua reminds them of God's generosity, how he brought them into the land and rescued them from the Canaanites. And so he calls them to turn away from the Canaanite gods and be faithful to the covenant they made. If they do, it will lead to life and blessing in the land. But if they're unfaithful, Israel will call down on itself the same divine judgment that the Canaanites experienced. They'll be kicked off the land into exile. And so Joshua leaves Israel with a choice. What is Israel going to do? That's the big question that looms as the story ends, and that's the book of Joshua. All right, so I hope uh, you learned a lot of great things about the book of Joshua. I love those videos. I feel like every time I watch them, I learn a lot of great things about that book of the Bible. And they've been really helpful for me as I've studied uh, the Bible in my own time. 
But anyway, as we saw from this video, the book of Joshua is really God's story of how he brought the nation of Israel into the promised land. And it ends with those two chapters where Joshua is giving these two speeches to the nation of Israel and calling them to be, remain faithful to God. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 23. This is one of those sermons where, since it's two chapters, I'm not going to be reading a ton of it out loud or big sections of it, but I'm going to be referencing it often. So it will be really helpful if you have an open Bible in front of you and you can follow along um, in Joshua chapter 23. Um, but before we get to that, I'm going to pray for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word and how we can see the stories in the Bible about how you were faithful to your people. Lord, I pray that you would help our hearts this morning to be faithful and that we would be open to what you have to say to us so that we can learn and grow and continue to be better followers of Jesus and that we can influence the world around us um, with the message of the gospel that you have entrusted to us. Lord, I pray that you would fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit and help me to speak only your truth. Amen. So this speech in Joshua chapter 23 takes place years after the Israelites have conquered most of the Canaanite people that were living in the promised land. And they had already divided up the territories and the land to each tribe of the Israelites. And these, this chapter takes place at the end of Joshua's life when he is realizing that he is about to pass away. And he wants to reflect on all that God has done in his life. And he wants to give these two speeches to the leaders of the Israelites and challenge them to continue to obey God. He begins his speech by reminding them that they, have, they themselves have seen what God had done for them. They had seen how God protected them from attacks by striking fear into the armies of the Canaanites. They had seen how God had given them victory against overwhelming odds. And they had seen how God had promised to give them a land to live in and how he kept that very promise and delivered this land to them in their very lifetime. <clears throat> the idea that Joshua is reminding the people of this commandment is that God, sorry, let me start that over. The key idea that Joshua is reminding the people of in this commencement is that it is God who delivered this land to them. Follow along with me as I point out all the times that Joshua talks about what God has done in chapter 23. In verse 1, it says, The Lord had given Israel rest from their enemies. In verse 3, Joshua says, You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to these nations. Also in verse 3, It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Verse 5, The Lord your God will push out them for your sake. He will drive them out before you. Also in verse 5, as the Lord your God promised you. Verse 9, the Lord has driven out before you great and powerful enemies. In verse 10, one of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he promised. Verses 12 and 13, if you turn away, the Lord your God will no longer drive out these enemies. Verse 13, this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Verse 14, not one of the good promises the Lord your God has promised you has failed. Verse 15, 
All the good things the Lord your God has promised have come to you. And that's just stuff from verse 23. Chapter, sorry, chapter 23. Chapter 24 contains a lot more, but I don't want to bore you getting my knuckles bruised on an equine creature that's long stopped breathing. I think Joshua is trying to make this point very obvious, that the only reason Israel is where they are at right now, which is dwelling in the promised land and experiencing peace, is because God was with them and God was faithful to his promises. Israel can't look at all the blessings that they have received, really blessings that have just fallen into their lap, and disregard the complete role that God had in bringing about those blessings. It was all God. And in response, Joshua calls the people to choose who they're going to serve. There's that famous verse in chapter 24, verse 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In this verse, Joshua calls the Israelites to commit to themselves to obedience and worship of Yahweh alone. And the people respond enthusiastically, we will serve and obey God alone. And we're told that in verse 31, that Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. So we see that Israel committed themselves to obedience for God. And throughout the rest of the lifetime of Joshua and the elders that served under him, they did that. They obeyed God. But turn ahead a few pages to Joshua chapter 2, sorry, Judges chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. That's Judges chapter 2, verse 6. As you can see, these verses take place immediately after the speech that Joshua gave in verse chapter 23 and 24. Notice how verse 7 uses like the exact same language from Joshua 24, verse 31. But it goes on to talk about how after Joshua and the elders died, Israel forgot what God had done, and they turned to worship other gods. So God allowed an enemy to oppress them until they repented, and God raised up a judge to deliver them. And they experienced peace and blessing for a little while until again they forgot about God and began worshiping other, other gods. In fact, really the entire book of Judges follows this pattern. And this is this pattern right here. It starts first off, Israel forgets about God, turns to other gods. God allows another nation to come in and oppress them. Israel realizes that they have sinned and they repent and they turn to God for help. So God raises up a judge to deliver them into a time of peace. And they experience that peace for a little while until they forget about God and start turning to sin and worshiping other gods. And this cycle just continues over and over throughout the book of Judges. And we hear about the main theme for that book of Judges found in verse 21, verse 25, where it says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. And that's the pattern that Israel lived in until God decided to give Israel a king. The first king, Saul, he was unfaithful to God, so God got rid of him. But the second king, King David, obviously he was good because of his name. 
He was a man after God's own heart. And God established David as a mighty king. And he made a promise to David that one of his descendants would establish an eternal kingdom. And then David's son, Solomon, was the pinnacle of splendor of the Israelite kings on earth. Solomon had wisdom, he had wealth, and the nation experienced peace during his reign. And he had one of the reputation, a reputation for being one of the greatest kings on earth. But then he became captivated by his 700 wives. And we are told about in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, where it says, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So after Solomon, the kingdom became divided. It split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Both Israel and Judah had 20 kings, but every single one of the kings of Israel were wicked. They led the people to serve other gods. They practiced child sacrifice. They established temple prostitution and a lot of just other unspeakable things. Eventually, God had enough, and he brought the nation of Assyria in to capture the kingdom of Israel and completely destroyed them to the point where those 10 tribes that made up the kingdom of Israel, they no longer exist. They basically just dissolved into other nations and there's no more discernible, those, to, those 10 tribes are no longer discernible. The kingdom of Judah was only slightly more successful. They also had 20 kings, but eight of them chose to follow and obey God. The other 12 led the kingdom of Judah into idolatry, sin, and rebellion against God. Eventually, God had had enough of that too. And he allowed Judah to face 400 years of captivity, exile, and silence from God. And as a result of their sin, Judah faced the subjection of many nations as punishment for their rebellion, including being occupied by the Roman Empire. And it was in this time of correction that God raised up another deliverance for his people. Only this time it wasn't a judge or a king or a prophet. It was his son. Jesus Christ became flesh and made his dwelling among his people. He lived a life in complete obedience to God, spending much of his adult life making disciples. He was crucified for his claim to be God and to pay the penalty of sin, and to put humanity's sinful nature to death. Three days later, though, he rose from the dead, bringing new life to everyone that would put their faith in him. After he rose from the dead, he commissioned his disciples to go into every nation and make disciples of every race, of every tongue, and of every person, regardless of status or past. Then Jesus ascended up into heaven and he sent down the Holy Spirit to empower his people to establish his kingdom. Those disciples that learned under Jesus went into every corner of the known world and they preached the gospel and they made disciples. But even as they multiplied, they faced persecution. They were rejected and hunted by the Jewish religious leaders like Saul. They were declared illegal by Roman emperors and driven into an underground movement. They were hated by the, the pagans and the Romans and they were thrown into coliseums to be slaughtered. 
Yet God was faithful, and the church grew. Eventually, an emperor named Constantine believed he received a vision of the cross that told him to conquer by this. So he declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And while the church finally saw an end to the persecution, a new issue arose. Many of the church leaders became too involved in politics and got power hungry. They began to use Christianity as a way to gain power over people. And they promoted works as a way to earn salvation instead of receiving it by grace through faith. In the midst of all this, the church helped sanction holy wars where soldiers under the banner of God would attack, pillage, and murder people. Most of the common people were kept in the dark as to the Bible's true message as they were not allowed to have the Bible in their own language. And it was in those dark ages where God was again faithful. He raised up a man named Martin Luther who could read Latin and decided to read the Bible for himself. He concluded that the way that the church was leading was contrary to what the Bible taught. And he nailed his 95 thesis to the door of his church, which sparked a reformation that led the church to split, with one side putting those false teachings aside. And together with a man named Johannes Gutenberg, who invented a printing press so the Bible could be mass printed into the hands of the people, the Western world was brought out of the Western, or the, sorry, the Middle Ages, and their church was brought back into the path of right doctrine. It didn't take long, though, before corruption to take hold again, and the church began to write inquisitions to stomp out heresy. There are cases where people who were seen as outside of popular belief were murdered in unspeakable ways. In addition, many kings and queens would use the church for political influence and acquire their citizens to claim faith in Jesus or face penalty. So rather than people following Jesus because he had made them a new creation, people just claimed to be a Christian as it was what their nation told to do and they didn't want to face persecution. Many people wanted to escape the tyranny of the corrupt union of the church and state so they came to a new world and helped found the United States of America, a place where people were to have the freedom to choose what they wanted to believe without persecution or control from the government. And as the church began to cling tr to traditions and rituals, many ministers and people of God led waves of great awakenings to help the church focus back on repentance and commitment to their faith and their God, who was again faithful. So what was the point of all that? Why spend so much time talking about the past and what happened in Israel's history and the church history? Well, I did it because I wanted to draw out a point. Throughout history, God's people have had times where they have done some really amazing things. They have trusted God and demonstrated faith and helped improve the world around them. But they've also had their moments where they've done some pretty unspeakable things that have caused a lot of hurt and damage to the world around them as well as damage to God's name. Yet through all this, God has been faithful, even when his people have been all over the map. God was faithful to Abraham in his promise that Abraham's descendants would dwell in the land of Canaan. And 500 years later, despite Israel's constant complaining and rebellion, God delivered them into the land. And we learned all about that through the book of Joshua. God was faithful to the world in keeping his promise to Adam, to Abraham, and to David, 
and many others that a Savior would come and bring redemption to the nations. And despite Israel's wickedness and constant idolatry, and even the fact that they were in punishment, essentially, for their disobedience under the Roman Empire, like that's when God chose to bring Jesus and to be faithful, even when Israel was not. God was faithful to his promise to the disciples that he would build his church. And despite the fact that, if we're honest with ourselves, the church has some pretty serious stains in the past, God is still carrying out his mission to make disciples of every nation to the point where, according to pretty much every study that's shown, Christianity is about 33% of the world's religions. That's in first place by over 12%. That's one in every three people on this planet that claim to follow Jesus. And sure, you can maybe make the argument that not all of those truly follow Jesus the way the Bible calls us to, but it's really hard to support the claim that God has not been faithful in drawing this world to himself. And he's been bringing redemption to every people group on this planet. And we have, as followers of Jesus have to embrace the reality that the Bible tells us what God is doing with this current world. God's will is to establish his kingdom of redemption and reign. And he wants to prepare his church, the bride of Christ, for eternity. And if there is anything we can learn from studying what God has done through scriptures and throughout the history since, it's that God does what he says he's going to do. And this idea that God is at work and accomplishing his will, it's not really contingent on us. In other words, God is not dependent on us to accomplish his mission. He simply invites us to join him in experiencing the thrill of seeing him change people's lives. And I think this is really relevant for us today, especially as a church where we want to see God work in and through us. Because I truly believe that God is hard at work in the lives of the people of Port Washington. I mean, we have three solid, healthy, gospel-centered churches in this town who are actively spreading God's love into this community. And I think the question comes down to us today is are we going to be faithful in answering his call to join him in spreading his love to this community and to the people around us? It totally reminds me of what Bobby Schlenvoet talked about last week. Bobby is a junior at St. Norbert who did a summer missions trip through Crewe down to urban Milwaukee. And while she was here last week, she was sharing about her experiences and she made this amazing statement. She said, God invited me into his story. I didn't invite him into mine. He was in Milwaukee before I was, and he is still there after I left. I just had the privilege and opportunity to serve him, to serve there with him. I know last week when I was sitting there listening to her, I got goosebumps because I was thinking about how that is exactly what Joshua was hoping for the people of Israel as he made his speech at the end of his life. That they would not try to write their own stories and follow other gods, but rather that they would join God's story and join what God was doing. Joshua didn't want them to forget what God was all about. And he didn't want them to go and serve other gods. He wanted them to remember that it is God who got them where they're at. And if they wanted to go anywhere in the future, they needed to keep following him. And I think the same is true for us today as well. 
especially as a church that is in a season where we want to see God use us to spread the message of hope of the gospel outside the walls of this church. We want to see God develop strong families where our children love God from a young age. We want to see us develop deep relationships with our neighbors and the people of our community that bears fruit for the gospel. We want to see God use the people of this church to bring redemption to the broken world around us and healing and hope to the darkness. But this only happens when we realize that we can't accomplish any of this. Only God does this. Our job is to faithfully obey God and see where he is already at work and join him. I know I want the end of my life to be like the end of Joshua's life, where I can look back and see all the times where God has been faithful to me. And I think the way we do that is we need to commit ourselves to what Joshua says in chapter 24, verse 15, where he says, Choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we're so thankful that you didn't rely on the Israelites' faithfulness to carry out your plan for redemption to this world. But you did it on your own, Lord. You invited them to join you, and sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. But you still brought Jesus so that we could have forgiveness of sins, that we no longer have to commit our lives to things that are temporary and that lead us astray and are incapable of fulfilling us. Lord, I pray that you would instead help us to see the greatness of following you and realizing that you are, you're bringing redemption to this world and our lives can be about helping you on that and joining you on that. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us in this room to submit our lives to you, that we would choose to serve you and not these other false gods around us in our culture. And Lord, I pray that we would be committed to you as a church and that we would desire to see the people of Port Washington understand the greatness of the gospel and the greatness of your mercy and grace and the, the way that we live our lives and the way that we build relationships with the people and the way that we talk to the people in this community would be a demonstration of all that you can do. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be completely submitted to your will and that we would desire to follow you just as the people did during Joshua's time, just like Joshua did, just like Jesus did, and just like the people all around the world that are making a difference and, and bringing your plan of redemption to fruition because they're following you. Lord, I pray that that would be true of us as well. Amen.